Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. My guest this week, the first ever guest on Be Better Betters, is one of my dearest, dearest friends. I've known him since I started betting sports. He is a role model to me. He's a mentor. He's one of the few guys in the business, if not the only guy in the business that I know of, that not one person can ever say one bad thing about this guy. He has a heart of gold, razor sharp, very wise. Please welcome my man, Tugboat. Tug, how are you, buddy? Uh, I'm getting old. I'm a little tired. But I'm breathing. That's the good news. <laughs> All right. Sounds good, Tug. So I wanted to get into a little bit of the history on how you started in the business, but let's start from the beginning. How was life growing up? Well, you could take two things, family or neighborhood. Would you like to hear a little bit about both? Yeah, sure. Well, I was born in 1942. Didn't see my dad until 45 because he was a master sergeant in World War II. Um, and we lived on Pleasant Avenue, a small area on the east side of Manhattan. It was almost like a club. Everybody knew everybody. We were all like family. It only ran from 114 to 120th Street, six blocks. And growing up there was uh, quite unique. The fact that... Um, it was crime-filled in the sense that there were drug dealers, mafia figures, bookmakers. Gambling was a way of life. But there was also some very nice people in education. The neighborhood grew up doctors, lawyers, and so on. So it was very multifaceted. But uh, I loved growing up there. Now, uh, I went to a public school. And I was left back in the third grade. So my parents sent me away to a private military school in Harriman, New York. I hated it. It was two years of prison life. It was run by the Palantine Sisters Catholic Order. And Sister Victoria was notorious. I was physically and verbally abused. And um, my parents took me home and I finished up in Catholic school on Pleasant Avenue Holy Rosary. I became an altar boy, and uh, but gambling was a way of life since we're talking about gambling. There were number runners, sports bookies, uh, even my dad, who was a barber, took numbers, and he handed them into a, an office, and he got a commission to supplement the income to make life better for my mom and myself. And then my younger brother. So that was the neighborhood that I grew up in. And it was my gambling uh, was, uh, I became a gambler probably because of the trauma, uh, leaving a void in me and gambling filled the void from all the, the trauma of growing up in the, the military school and then my family life. My mother and father didn't get along. He often hit her, and uh, so that, and then my grandfather on my mother's side was a gambler. He had a stroke watching a football game on a local bar, and uh, 
who knows if my gambling was genetic, environment, or, or trauma, or a combination of two at the three, or all of them. And that's what life was like growing up in Harlem. Wow. Unbelievable. Incredible story. Just to get back a little bit, taking numbers, explain that. A lot of people, you know, younger listeners uh, might not understand what taking numbers mean. What is that exactly? Well, the, the state does it now. <laughs> it's the daily number. And there were two types. There was the New York number and the Brooklyn number. The New York number was based upon the first three races at either Aqueduct or Belmont or whatever track was running. They would add up all the mutuals and take the third number from the right. That would be the lead. The second number was the fourth and fifth race added to that. And the last number, the third digit, was the sixth and seventh race added to the first five and the third number from the right of the win, place, and show. The Brooklyn number was different. The Brooklyn number was the last three numbers of the total mutual either at Aqueduct or Belmont, the lead, whatever it was, the total amount of money bet in the last three numbers. So there was a Brooklyn number and the New York number. And my dad, actually, besides cutting hair and giving shaves, he booked it, but he turned it into an office to make a commission. Wow, incredible. Was, did a lot of businesses do that back then to be able to supplement the earn, to be able to help um, with the with the number running? Yes, absolutely. And was it frowned upon by law enforcement? Was it just, hey, listen, he's just booking numbers, but no problem? Or was law enforcement pretty strict? Very rarely did, I'm sorry to interrupt, but very rarely did anybody get arrested for that. It was considered acceptable behavior. And to be honest with you, (laughs) I remember even some of the policemen would put in their backs. (laughs) I love it. Like that. That's beautiful. Beautiful way. So you 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 go to military school. You're in Catholic school now. Um, what do, you know? How, what do you want to do when you grow up? When did that gambling bug bite you? What happened while you're in school? Well, the gambling to- bug bit me because it was a way of life. Uh, when we played ball, stick ball, stoop ball, softball, we we used to put in a dollar or two each guy and then bet, you know, on our own self. And then as I grew up, uh, betting on the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Giants, the local teams, was commonplace. And then it was football with the New York Giants, the Frank Gifford days. So uh, gambling was all over. Everybody used to do it, and I picked it up. And if you didn't gamble, you were considered an oddball. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. So that's great. So is when did you, you know, while you were in school, nobody ever goes to school and says, hey, I'm going to become a professional better. I'm going to become a, a bookmaker when I grow up. What happens no. along the way? You know, when I was in Catholic, I'm sorry to interrupt again, no, but when know. I was in Catholic, Catholic school, um, you know, that training in military school continued in Catholic school. Uh, going to hell or heaven was a big thing. And uh, burning in hell was something I didn't look forward to. But dying with a mortal sin on your soul. So I decided the best way to get into heaven was to become a priest. So I actually went to uh, a seminary as a freshman in high school. And I sat next to Martin Scorsese, by the way. What? an interesting oh. story in itself. 
Okay. Yes, we became best friends. He he wanted to become a priest too. Uh, he was thirteen. I was fourteen. But he was uh, fourteen in October, a few months after we met, and they put us in alphabetical order in class one C. And Marty sat to my left, S and T, tugboat, or if you want to call it. But my last name starts with a T. Um, so we became best of friends, and then we both left and went to Colonel Hayes because we decided it wasn't for us, priesthood. And we was, remained best friends, and we're good friends even until today. Wow, that's great. Unbelievable. But, uh, but uh, I, I actually... Went into I went I went to Iona College after high school, and then I uh, decided to become a, a teacher, and I got my master's degree at Lehman College by 1969. Okay, so you, so this is great. So you get a master's degree, you're looking to teach. You, you what made you want to become a teacher? Um, well, to be honest with you, the the, the the war was on, and teachers were exempt. So my best friend and I decided to become teachers to avoid being drafted. <laughs> oh, okay, perfect. Easy enough. <laughs> that's that's it. the truth. That's it. Good. No, of course. And my best friend, who I grew up with in Harlem, and we both loved to go to the track together with a fruit store owner. I'm not going to mention his name, but he lives on Staten Island, and we'll call him Horse from here until the rest of the conversation. No problem. So you're, you're a teacher uh, in, in 1969. When do you cross over and say, "Hey, listen, I want to do this. I want to get." No, into I got a... my master's. Degree. Oh, you got your master's in '69. And in '69, I was going at nighttime, but I started my teaching career in 1965. Yeah, September of '65, and PS 78 on Pleasant Avenue. So right, right where you grew up. Yes. That school that I was left back in, the third grade, I actually started teaching. There. Unbelievable how life comes full circle. So you're teaching in that school. Um, you get your master's degree. When does the gambling now start to kick in? Okay, well, the gambling was concurrent. It's going back to almost teenage years. My best friend and I, I think our first bet was putting in $3 each, making a six dollar parlay where if we won we would have gotten back 20 we would have won 14 and to be honest with you I, I don't even remember if we won it or lost it but if we lost it we continued chasing it and we continued gambling and if we won it we were so thrilled that we continued gambling so I was gambling uh, till uh, let's see well I gambled even when I was a bookie <laughs> it wasn't um, I know every bookie gambles himself or herself. Um, so the gambling, uh, well, it went into bookmaking around 1973. I was separated and divorced from my wife, and we were married later on in life. And I was living in Harlem on Pleasant Avenue uh, when I turned bookie. If you want to hear how, I'm willing to share that. Ab absolutely, I love that. Okay, so one evening I went downstairs and went across the street to a candy store. It was owned by a fellow named Charlie Ding Ding. It's the same candy store on the corner where a very famous scene in The Godfather took place. Where, uh, what was his name? 
you know, son of uh, Marlon Brando, Sonny, I think. And he beat up uh, his brother-in-law for hitting his sister. That's famous scene. That candy store right on the corner. I went there one night, and Charlie Ding Ding said to me, Todd, do me a favor. I can't leave the store. Please bring this bet to Jimmy Pisacano. It was a five-time bet. He handed me $27.50. The Knicks were playing the Pistons that night. I said, Charlie, do you mind if I book this myself? I like the other side. Well, he said, okay, as long as I get paid if I win. I said, sure. So I booked it. I won. I was kind of thrilled that I won $2.50 more than I would have if I bet the game. And I saved two fifty if I'd have lost the game. Like a five dollar swing. Yeah. I told Charlie the next afternoon, listen, tell everybody in the neighborhood I'm a bookie. I'll be working out of my father's barber shop, <laughs> which was less than a block away. That's the truth. Well, I sat there the night that night, the next night, and I had two more customers. Charlie himself, Charlie Ding Ding, a fellow named Joey K and his brother Peter. Then after the next night, I had another customer, Paulie Fat. Then I had five customers the night after. Zooch, who was also a bookie, but he was like the bet too. And it just grew and grew and grew. That I couldn't stay in my father's barbershop with one phone anymore. So I went up to my apartment, which was half a block away and across the street. And I put in another phone so I could have two phones. And uh, I got my line from several bookmakers in the neighborhood. But it took me a short time to realize that Jimmy Pisacano had the best line of all because he was booking sharp customers. And I started to do well knowing I had a stronger line. I could bet the bookmakers of his strong line or book guys who were looking and saying, oh, this is the best thing. Example, let's say Jimmy had seven and a half on a game and everybody else had seven. The betters would take the seven and a half who were shopping around, but they were on the wrong side because Jimmy had wise guys, including some guy named Billy Walters out west. So that's what happened. And um, I grew and grew and grew. And then I needed more phones. Well, before that, my best friend, Hoss, on weekends, actually drove from Staten Island to my apartment in Harlem to help me answer the phones and to chart. But then it grew and grew and grew. And after I knew it, I had seven guys work in the office. Five clerks answering phones. I would sit in the middle and hedge, and I had a charter. Now, how many active customers are we talking about at the peak? Oh, I would say in those days, 80 or 90 was a lot of guys. Mm -hmm. I would say almost 100, but probably not more. Gotcha. Now, when you say in 100, these aren't 5 and 10 time betters. We're talking, these are dime guys. Uh, big money or what kind of betters well, did let you me, have? Let me explain. Yeah. I started out with neighborhood guys. And it grew and grew and grew. And then a 
Bookie, who's deceased, Dickie Esposito retired. And he knew that I was honorable, so he gave me four customers that he had, and they came from different states. Can I tell you a little bit about the four? Yes. One guy we called Kent, because he was from Kentucky. He came in as Kent. His name was Sonny Rogers. Most people know about Sonny Rogers. Then there was a fellow we called Southern Comfort because he was from New Orleans. His real name was Walter, but he moved for someone else. And I'll remember the name in a second. <laughs> um, then I also had Carmen Chickalese, known as Buddy. The Gasposito gave me him. And we called him Ghost because he owned a haunted mansion, uh, which was a, a getaway for children and adults. It was a nice place to visit, uh, the haunted mansion in New Jersey. Then I had a guy named Goldie, and he was one of the original Wiz kids on television. You're probably too young to remember they had a program on with kids with high, high IQs, and it was like a game show. Goldie was one of those. Uh, I met all all these people except Kent. I never really met him, but he was such a nice guy that when I was in trouble financially, he actually lent me fifty thousand dollars way back, never meeting me because I was in trouble. And then a year or two later, he even lent me a hundred thousand. Of course, I paid him back, and I get him gave him a little gift. And then. I got other wise guys betting with me. A fellow named Mickey Appleman, Johnny Astorita, Dickie Stevens, Billy Baxter, Henry, who used to move for Billy Walters, and also started Pinnacle. You know about Pinnacle, it's reduced juice <laughs> discount. I also had Stevie Muller, Harold Levine, and Jack Magro. Unbelievable. Those were some of the wise guys that this, I had. This is like the who's who uh, of the business back then, those names that you just mentioned. Anybody? Yeah, well. That, so you were booking the, all these guys. The word got around and that I was an honorable person, and somehow one person tells another, and uh, I had all these, these wise guys. And how did I make money? Betting with them. Uh, with other bookmakers around the neighborhood. There was a fellow named Tex. There was, I'm going to get into all the names, but there were at least five or six other bookies that I was using. But Jimmy Pesicano was my guideline, and then I had all these wise guys. And I basically was betting and booking. Booking the wrong side and betting the right side. Perfect. And, and your number became one of the sharpest from what I'm, you know, I remember hearing from other bookmakers, you know, I was, this was way before my time, but I always heard that your number was one of the sharpest numbers in the country at one point. Am I, uh... Well, well, I don't want to take all the credit. Believe me, um, um, Jimmy Piscicano's line guided me. And, by the way, Jack Magrell, who Harold Levine uh, introduced me to, we went partners and we opened up a place right near the Copacabana on 60th Street. And Jack Magro was my mentor. He told me the values of half points, which numbers to skip over, like you could go from one to two and a half or from 
four to five and a half rather than four and a half because five is not a, you know, and, and make a lot more juice doing things like that. Jack Macro was really my mentor. I don't even know if he's alive or deceased. He was from Fort Lee, New Jersey. I haven't seen him in 20 years or more. Unbelievable. This is some great stuff, Tug. So you're booking, you're at the peak. Um, any run-ins with law enforcement? What you know? Yes, there was a very minor one when I was on Pleasant Avenue in that original apartment where I actually lived. But it was a misdemeanor and I was thrown out. And uh, nothing ever became of it. But then, um, well, because I wanted to move out of my apartment, we went to a building on 117th Street between Pleasant and First. It was under construction. It said Concord Construction, but it was a trap. Concord stood for, uh, Jesus, what, Concord, uh, Construction corruption, Concord. They were trying to get, you know, people and uh, that were corrupt in the construction business. But the building was empty, and I went there. I didn't know I was talking to undercover agents, and I said, "Gee, I'd like to rent an apartment." And I told them what I needed it for. I'm a bookie, because I didn't have any shame. <laughs> yeah. They were they were very obligating. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, we were there a couple of months until they finally arrested us. And uh, uh, Jeffrey Doyle, the detective, FBI agent Jeffrey Doyle, was in charge of the operation. And believe it or not, he wrote a book about all the drugs investigation. But a little part of it was about describing my operation and my pinch. And he gave me a kind of compliment that he said, my operation looked like the one in the movie The Sting. Oh, man. Remember with Paul Newman? Yes, yes. <laughs> if you, and the name of the book is White Math, in case oh. anybody's interested. Oh, I think it's God. page 18 or 19, right <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah. Said that, so I took that as a compliment. Yeah, why, of course. So then I got, I got arrested, and, uh, you know, that was 1986, and I went before a federal judge, Judge Connor. And I pled guilty. And before he sentenced me, he said, do you have anything to say? And all I said was, well, Your Honor, the state is in the same business. And here's his reply word for word. I agree with you. I wouldn't give you a day in jail for the gambling. But I'm forced to give you 60 days because of the tax evasion. In other words, I didn't put down the taxes of the money that I wanted. <laughs> and I, so I went to, to Allenwood Prison for 60 days, but because of good behavior, I only did 52 days. And I happened to be overweight, so I lost 49 pounds in those 52 days by playing handball, softball, walking, and dieting. And I came home healthier than I'd ever been in my life. <laughs> so it was not a bad experience. Yeah, why not? And, and it was the summertime, so it was not bad. Allenwood's a wonderful place if you have to be in prison. <laughs> That's incredible. So you, okay. so this is this is the first time you're ever incarcerated at this at this point? Yeah. Uh, okay. But then uh, because the business kept going in my absence and I made my friends run it, but I, I kind of managed it from the outside, I got caught anyway. And um, 
I was sentenced in 1988. I went before a federal judge called Robert Sweet, who just passed away, by the way, a few months ago. And um, he could have given me five years, but he only gave me a year and a day. And while I was in jail, I wrote what's called a Rule 35B. It's no longer in existence. A Rule 35B meant to ask for reduction of sentences, of sentence for any circumstances that you want to tell the judge. And I, I quoted philosophers like John Stuart Mill and the rest. And believe it or not, all my friends in jail were telling me I was wasting my time because only about 2% were ever approved. And believe it or not, Judge Robert Sweet, he granted me, and all my friends were st astonished. And look at this talking, did it, he did it. And I was out in four months and 20 days. I lost 50 pounds that time, by the way, oh. doing the same thing. And was so this those were my two experiences with actually going to jail. Was this Allenwood also a, or no? What's that? Was this in Allenwood, the second second stint? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Allenwood again, you know. And some of the guys who were there when 86 were still there. And they say, hey, Tug, get back. You like it so much. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. Yep. So, have, you know, did going to, to prison, even if it wasn't that long, but did that change you in any way? Did, did it affect you in any way on how you No, I don't think it did. I don't, I really don't think it took away from uh, my feeling like a criminal or anything like that. Because, uh, let's face it, what I did is leave, was legal in four states, legal in most parts of the world. I have no guilt, and, uh, and now it's legal. The Supreme Court last year made it legal in every state that wants to have it, and some other states have done it now, yeah. as you know. Absolutely. So, um, so did you ever so, now, given that you were booking and everything and everything was successful, you had a successful run business, did you ever try to now, because you're getting some sharp information, did you ever partner up with any sharp bettors or try to go on, on the betting end of things um, at all? Um, not really, no. No, I would bet games on my own that I thought were hot. And, uh, and uh, by the way, I worked in Las Vegas. Uh, with Marty Wagner, and that's where I met Billy Walters. Billy had been coming into me through Henry, famous, Henry's kind of quite yeah. famous, Sneakers. associated with Pinnacle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I used to meet him and pay and collect when he bet for Billy. But then when I went to work in Vegas for one year, uh, working with Marty Wagner, we were betting middles. And uh, we we didn't have a good year. I gave up. I I, I took a sabbatical from teaching. I was making fifty thousand that particular time in my teaching career, and I only made thirty six thousand with Marty. So I took a fourteen thousand dollar loss. So I gave that up and I just came home and you know I continued my teaching career. I taught for twenty years. I'm living on a pension, but I still was an agent. I was living a double life. So when you say you met Billy in, in, in Vegas, did you you were friendly with Billy? What kind of business did you guys do? Well, when we when we met in Vegas, we actually went to dinner one night with the wives. It's a place called Second Story on the west side of Vegas, and uh, we had a great time. Billy made a comment. I'll tell you a funny story. My wife was wearing uh, a sport jacket with little like 
gems. They weren't real diamonds, but they were glossy. And Billy said, gee, that's a beautiful sport jacket. And my wife said, what, this whole thing? She pointed at me and said, he didn't buy me anything new in years. And Billy laughed. He got a kick out of it. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so um, what happened was that Billy knew I was leaving. And he said, when you get home, how would you like to move for me? And I actually moved for him for a year or two. And I had uh, my nephew, my my wife's nephews. Uh, they helped me around the table when the calls came in. We moved for him. And actually, I, I even forgot how we ever collected or, or paid him. <laughs> Must have had an intermediary. But then we got arrested for that. But they threw the case out. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, that was one of the was that was one of the many pinches Billy was able to dodge, right? That when, when yeah, yeah, I was part of that. It's even on the internet, but nothing ever became of it because they realized we were only betting. Gotcha, perfect. So um, you're everything's localized. Have you ever had any experience uh, booking or, or going offshore at all or, or overseas? I I worked on I for, um, for big city. I went partners with a few people and uh, it didn't work out. We didn't make much money and there was a little friction between one me and one of my partners. I don't want to mention who. Um, so that didn't work out. And then I went and worked for Canbet. Canbet, but, which but was in, some, e- in England. Canbet, Canbet is in England. Yes, yes. I remember Canbet well. I remember Canbet used to deal minus oh seven juice. For uh, for years mm. and years back then, yeah. And and you lived in England. I did. I lived in England, uh, Hampshire, Hampshire, in Fareham. And and I liked it there, but to be honest with you, the people there were very very nice. But take this example: person shakes your hand. That's what the English do. They shake your hand. But when I worked in Costa Rica. The young people there, they're so religious. Your friends hug you there if you get my drift. Uh, I actually enjoyed living in Costa Rica, even though it's a third world country almost, rather than in England. I liked them both, but it was much more friendly. I felt much more at home in Costa Rica. Beautiful. And also, the time difference booking, I guess, from Hampshire, England, You'd have games starting. Five-hour time difference? Yeah, yeah, you had to work until like 2, 3 in the morning. Jeez. You know, when the late game started. That's true. So, um, wow, this is unbelievable stories, Tug. Um, what, uh, you know, uh, bookmakers today, how do you, how would you describe bookmakers today that are, in, that are different than bookmakers in your era? Okay. Well, very few bookmakers actually sit like we did in the 60s, 70s, maybe the 80s. Uh, booking themselves. Most bookmakers today send their customers offshore and they get sheets or they go into per head shops. There are very few bookmakers that do it like we did in the old days, sit in an apartment with clerks. It's risky. Uh, probably cost you more. Um, so you, you save on rent, clerks, time you don't have to be there seven days a week you just send your customers into a big shop in offshore costa rica is one of them and there are there are others 
and you could either get a half sheet or, you know, where you don't even risk anything. If your customers win, you don't sell out a penny. If they lose and you're out of the red, you, you get a split, and that's not bad. It's kind of better labor-wise and cost-wise and jeopardy-wise, legally. I mean, you know, you're not prone to be raided, but of course you could still get in trouble if they find out you're an agent or, you know. And the per head shops, you can book the persons yourself. Uh, you're booking the whole thing and you're paying like $10 or $15 per head. So there are, that's what the bookmakers basically do today. I'm sure there are a few others that still like to book themselves with private customers, but I think that's a real minimum. Costa, and that's so, the story for that. So my next question is, is what are the difference of bookmakers today versus bookmakers in your era when it comes to taking on sharp customers? Um, today, it seems as if bookmakers, the regulated bookmakers that are coming from Europe, they don't like sharp action. It's easier for them to get rid of the sharp well, action. Right. From what I hear, since I'm not in the business any longer, and I really wasn't booking uh, in the Internet era, let's say, um, I think they try to chase customers. If I were booking, I would try to use them. But since they, they're not booking themselves and they don't, they don't sit and hedge, it's hard for them to do that. So what they're doing now is trying to figure it out. If they think someone's sharp, they try to get rid of them, and then that person would try to probably put someone else in, you know, <laughs> decoying. You know, know what I mean? 100%. Absolutely, they'll put a beard in. So, how does like some like a right. place like Pinnacle or Chris, like these major offshore sports books that are so sharp and that that book customers, can any of these European joints that are coming into the United States, um, do you think they could build a similar model? Is it profitable to build that model, or should they just kick out the sharps? Is it easier that way? What would you do? Honestly, I didn't give that much thought and, uh, since I'm not in the business, and um, I really don't know the answer to that. But uh, if you put a gun to my head, I'd say I'd try to chase them and just book suckers. Because if I were if I were ending if if I were the old days, I would use the shop. I would want the shop customers to guide me. But if you're not there, and you're just sending them into for a sheet. They'll take all the profits away. No, 100%. But I'm, talk, I'm, I'm talking about regulated. Forget about sheets or anything like that. We're talking about regulated sports books, ones that are operating legally in New Jersey, in Nevada, and whatnot. What, do you, what should these guys do um, with respect to short They're in a catch-22. It's not right to throw anyone out, I don't think. Uh, and then the sharp players will, will decrease their profits. Not that sharp players win every game, and sharp players are known to have bad spells too, but I, I don't think they're in a very good position where they, they can try to tell people not to play there, but I don't think that's very ethical. So, Tug, how would someone like you or Jimmy P back in the day able to take on all these sharp customers and utilize them to your advantage? My guess is that Joey P booked them and they took away from the profits of all his other customers. That's my my take on that. I am not saying you know, I was more modern 
uh, I am more modern, but I'm not saying that I'm smarter than Jimmy or anything like that. But I try to use those Sharpies to bet with them or to move the line and attract the other side. My Jeopardy was getting sided or middled, but I made up for it with, uh, with, the, with winning more games than losing. Perfect. Did you ever consider consulting, given your vast experience at all? There's a lot of... No, I never did. I never, never did. Doug, do you have any advice for bookmakers and or betters today? For bookmakers? Yeah. Go where it's legal. Book where it's legal. As far as booking itself, um, get a sharp line and uh, good luck. And you have the advantage. You know, you have an advantage because uh, teasers in your parlays, they're all in your favor. You're getting 11 to 10. In most cases, Pinnacle does discount. Uh, but you still have the odds in your favor. And even sharp players lose. Now, how about betters? There's a lot of guys that are aspiring. Yeah, betters. I have two, two bits of advice for betters. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the betting. Make it entertainment, but don't let it destroy yourself. Enjoy yourself, but not to a point where it destroys you. If you think you have a problem, try to quit and get some help. But basically, I think betting on sports, even horses, is an enjoyable, healthy experience. It's just like alcohol. Uh, Alcohol is enjoyable, but if you become an alcoholic... It could hurt you. Just like a sex addict. I mean, because there are sex addicts, what do we do? Everybody stops making love. So, simply because some people become compulsive pathological gamblers doesn't mean that we should give up the enjoyment of placing a bet on a game. As long as you don't let it interfere with your normal expenses of family and your own expenses. Leave it as an enjoyment. But if you think you have a problem, try to stop. That's my advice to players. Great advice. What if there's, there's some aspiring guys out there that say, listen, I think I'm good enough to be a professional. Um, you've seen many professional sports bettors. You've been, interacted with them all your years. How hard is it mm-hmm. to be a pro sports better? And what advice do you have to these guys? If you're making a profit, enjoy it. And use the money for something constructive for your family. If you could go back in time, Tug, is there anything you would change? That's a nice, interesting question. I've had a a roller coaster ride of a life with this gambling. I'm not sure if I never did this, how my life would have turned out. Maybe I wouldn't be... You know, I've had happiness and and thrills and interesting life. Maybe it would have been dull, boring, and sad. I don't know. Then again, if I never did this, I don't know. Maybe there would have been another happy road. So I really, that's like a gamble, if you know what I mean. Going back in time and saying, now you could take the same road again, or you could take this road. You know, like the yellow brick road (laughs) in The Wizard of Oz? I don't know the answer to that. It's an interesting question. Maybe this was a gift. 
I did make money. I mean, I have lots of possessions that maybe I wouldn't have had. I made more money than I would have uh, if I just stayed as a teacher, that's for sure. But, of course, I suffered other things, like the pinches. But I also have many, many friends that I gained in this business. Nine out of ten people in this business that I met are good friends and moral and, and really people that I, I would not have met and that would have been sad. So I really don't know if I had to do it over again. If I had to bet on it, oh, I shouldn't say that. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, yeah, I'd do it all over again. Beautiful. All right, Tug. How did you get the name Tugboat, by the way? Okay, that's interesting. Remember I told you I went to Holy Rosary, the Catholic school, after coming home from that prison, you know, the, the private military school? Mm -hmm. Well, in Holy Rosary, I think it was the sixth or seventh grade, Sister Cecilia was taking the roll call. She was calling out of the names of who's present and who's. So she came to John Tugnino and one of my friends in the class, I think it was Funzi, who I still know. I'm pretty sure it was him. He yelled out Tugboat because Tugnino. So that's how I got it. And everybody laughed in the class. And of course, everybody in the class lived in the neighborhood and they all told and they all, and it became common when they say tugboat, hi, tugboat, hi, tugboat. So that's how I got the name because one of my friends during roll call, he heard tug Nino and the tug, he had a boat to it. And it stuck with me. And it stuck with you what, till now. 70 years. 70 years. <laughs> 60, 65 years. I love it. That's great. <laughs> Beautiful yeah. stuff, Tug. So, Tug, you've been retired from bookmaking for a very long time. What do you do to fill your time these days? Well, first of all, the bookmaking ended in around 88, and then I became an agent, which I described. But then I fully retired in 2016. Um, well, my day is filled with lots of things. I'm a bit overweight, so I try to walk in a park, which is only a block away, Pelham Bay Park. Uh, I'm into dog rescue, especially Japanese Akitas. I spend some time trying to rescue unwanted dogs. I work with Central Animal Hospital in Ardsley, New York. And um, actually, actually, Scarsdale, I'm sorry. I have dinner with friends about once a week. Uh, I stay home and watch television, especially turn to classic movies. I love watching the old movies. Uh, Saturday nights, I look forward to the honeymooners <laughs> with Jackie Gleason, reminiscing about my youth. I love to laugh, so I watch Frasier, Will and Grace, Two and a Half Men, The Nanny at Night. Um, I see pigeons. Every other day in my neighborhood. And recently I've been feeding some cats that have been coming around. To, although my wife is not crazy about that. and I'm going to have to cut that one out. Because when you're married, you have to reach a compromise when you're married. <laughs> That's about it. All right, Tug. Well, listen, this was an unbelievable. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you don't really do this type of things. It really means a lot to me. And 
um, you know, I've known you for so long, and you've you've, you've been such a help uh, with me starting up in this business, and you've taught me so many things about doing the right thing, and and every time I'd always have an issue or I've had a problem, I needed your advice. You're always there for me, and um, and I love you, buddy. You're a great friend, and and thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom with people out there that that could really, you know, that if they could just have an ounce of of, of your experience or your wisdom, it, it'll It'll be worth it for everybody. The feeling is mutual, and anybody who knows you, as I do, would say you're a great guy. Bye-bye. Thank you, buddy. Talk soon. You're very welcome. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to that interview with my man, Tugboat. I hope you all enjoyed it. <laughs> um, he's one of the legends in the business, and uh, anybody that was back in, in uh, the heyday of uh, the 70s and the 80s, uh, we'll know that Tugboat was one of the most recognizable bookmakers, not just in the New York area, just like you mentioned, he was booking uh, big, big customers all around the country. So it's a pleasure to have Tugboat on, and um, I look forward to having uh, several more guests in the, in the weeks and months to come. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time. <laughs>